Shabbat Shalom on this Labor Day weekend. Does everyone know what Labor Day is about? Is it about laboring? Anyway, do we, get, do we cease for our labors for three days? Actually, I had to look this up because in all honesty, I really had forgotten kind of what Labor Day is really, what we're celebrating Labor Day weekend. So did you know this? Labor Day in the United States is a public holiday celebrated on the first Monday in September. It honors the American labor movement and the contributions that workers have made to the strength, prosperity, laws, and well-being of the country. Labor Day is called the unofficial end of summer because it marks the end of the cultural summer season. So now you know what Labor Day is about. You all knew that, right? Did everybody know that? Yes, Eric. No, I don't care. I'm taking another day off from work. I don't care what it's about. Anyway, I just thought you needed to know that. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for this day. And we thank you, God, for those that are here. As Henry prayed, we certainly pray for safety and protection and a good time of fellowship and renewal for the men that are on the retreat. And Lord, we just pray for all those needs throughout the congregation uh, that are unspoken. We pray continuously for healing and restoration for anybody, such as Marguerite and Janet Fleming and just everybody else, whatever those physical needs are. There's so many needs. And we ask today, God, that you would just speak through your word. We pray, God, that you would have your way with each person, that they'd be able to set aside their distractions in life, which are so many. And I pray, God, that you would definitely minister to them through the work of your Ruach, because it's all about your work, speaking through your word into their lives. And we ask that that would be done in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Well, you know, when we do sermons here at Beth Messiah, since obviously Howard does the bulk of them, I fill in every once in a while, and Peter and Henry and some other people, uh, you know, we're so privileged to have Howard go through books. That's the way we teach at Beth Messiah. We go through books, and we spend a long time preaching exegetically through books. As you know, I think we'll probably be in Genesis till at least 2000, maybe mid-2018. I don't know, but that's okay. It's our 2019, I don't know, but that's all right, it's fine. We're in no rush, because we want to preach slowly, and we go through books, and we're very honored by that, because that is a very important, uh, you know, we're just, it's, it's, it's good, it's a good thing. And then sometimes, you know, when, when some of us fill in, like myself or someone else, uh, we, we may go through a chapter, you know, because we only have that one time, because we can't preach the whole book, we may speak through a chapter, or... We may preach what's called topically. You know, we pick a topic, and then we go through certain scriptures that address a topic. You know, Howard definitely does do topics every once in a while, like during a holiday or something. He'll explain the holiday and go through the scriptures or something. But every once in a while, we do what's called topical preaching, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a little topical speak uh, preaching, and... Several years ago, when I was a new believer, as we all you know, come to that place in our faith when we're brand new in the Lord, we sometimes ask, you know, what is God's will for my life? And I remember I was a brand new believer at age 24 and kind of going through this issue, like, what is, what is God's will for my life? What does he have for me? And, you know, then I met Henry a couple years later, and I was sitting there in his library, and believe it or not, inconceivable, right? that Henry would have a book, you know, to give to me. And naturally, uh, he did have a book, and he gave me this book called Decision-Making in the Will of God. 
And, you know, I read this book and I went through it, and this is the newer version, third edition, I think. But, you know, it was uh, very helpful, and it's been used in a lot of circles, very common book uh, by Gary Friesen. Howard used it as well. But, you know, then I went along and I read some more books, and boy, there's a lot of books on God's will. Oh my gosh, there's hundreds of them that have been written. Look, here's another one, a more current one that came out over the last five years. Just do something, a liberating approach to finding God's will, or how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. So that's an interesting little book, Just Do Something. I kind of like that book. So, uh, you know, I had a friend of mine, actually, over the last few months who's been struggling with some issues. He's in another part of the country. He's not here, so he's not going to worry that I'm talking about this, but he called me and he said, uh, you know, I'm really struggling with God's will at this stage of my life. You know, I have a good job, but it just seems God must have some sort of special plan for my life, and it's just not happening. I mean, look, I get up, I go to my job every day, it's the same thing every day, and day in and day out. He just said, I, I'm just not happy. I think God must have something more for me, like Paul or someone in the Bible or some special anointing or purpose, you know, and I'm just not getting that, and maybe I just don't matter in the plan of God or in the eyes of God. So, you know, we just went through some things in the Bible, and, you know, when we have the Word of God here, we need to understand that everything about God's moral will is in this book, okay? God has revealed His moral will in many ways all throughout the Bible, and I think sometimes for a lot of us, we may struggle to remember that there are a lot of things in the Bible that actually God's already told us to do, okay? And the challenge for us is carrying out the will of God, okay? And what I want to do today is kind of just maybe go through some reminders about, no, four, maybe four or five things about some of the things that God has already asked us to do, some things that are definitely His will, because He's already laid them out in the text. I mean, we don't need to pray about it. We don't need to ask if it's His will. We don't need a leading. It's here, okay? It's, it's all in the revealed will of God, and this is God speaking to us. This is the main way He speaks to us today is through the text, okay? So I want to go through a few things here, and let's turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to start with uh, something in Romans chapter 8, and if you do not follow along in the scriptures, you're going to be lost, so I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 8, and we see in Romans chapter 8 something that is very important for all of us as professing followers of Yeshua. Now, in Romans 8, we tend to use this verse, I mean, tend to use this passage a lot when we see suffering in the world or suffering in our own lives. And we tend to kind of get it out of context, which we do with a lot of things. But the first half of Romans 8 is about the relationship of the Torah and the Spirit. And Paul talking about the interaction between walking in the Spirit, walking in the flesh, the mindset on the Spirit is peace, etc., etc., and then how the Spirit of God indwells us. But then when he comes down to the second half of the chapter... We come to, let's just start in verse 20 here of Romans chapter 8, verse 20. It says here, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected, of it, 
subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And in the same way, this, the Ruach helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Ruach himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. For he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Ruach is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he, for, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he may might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to focus on verses, mostly, uh, mostly verses 28 on through 30 there. Because, you know, when things go wrong in our lives or things go wrong in the world, we tend to quote verse uh, 28 here about God works all things together for the good, for those who love God according to his purpose. And we tend to say, well, you know, God will work it for his good. Whatever mistake you've made, whatever's going on in your life, God will work it for his good. But we don't tend to read on there what he says there in verse 29 and 30 about being conformed to the image of the Messiah. Notice he says here, he says in verse 29, and he says here, for whom he foreknew, or no, in verse 28, at the end of verse 20, he talks about his purpose, but then he talks about in verse 29, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Messiah. And then we t he talks about, uh, he called, those he predestined and he called. Now, uh, we're not going to do a lot with these verses and go into a Calvinist debate because we all know pa Paul wasn't a Calvinist, right? He never read Calvin, okay? I think that's not really what we're going to talk about here today. But one thing we can say for sure for every single believer, no matter what your background is, no matter where you're at in life, what your job is, what your vocation is, what you want to do with your life, uh, whether you're married or not married, whether you have kids or no kids, it, or whatever it is, God's overall plan for our life, for every single believer, is to be conformed to the image of the Messiah. That is his overall goal for our lives, to become like the Messiah. That is his moral will, that is his revealed will. We don't need to question that at all. Now, Jerry Bridges says in his book, The Discipline of Grace, that becoming like the Messiah is God's goal, for all who trust in Messiah, and that should be our goal also. He says both words transformed and conform, conform have a common root form, meaning a pattern or a mold. Being transformed refers to the process. Conformed refers to the finished product. Yeshua is our pattern or mold. We are being transformed so that we will eventually be conformed to the likeness of the Messiah. 
sanctification or holiness, the words are somewhat interchangeable, then is conformity to the likeness of the Messiah. Okay, so whatever is going on in our lives, we have established for no doubt that God's overall purpose for all of us is to become like Yeshua, okay? So that means whatever trial we're in, whatever we're going through, God will use that, of course, to conform us to the image of the Messiah. Whether things are going good, God will certainly take whatever it is and use that to conform us to the image of the Messiah. That's his goal. Now, you may say to yourself, well, boy, I mean, I'm, the goal of God's life, or go, God's goal for my life and everyone's life is to become like the Messiah. That sounds like a basic tenant. I mean, it sounds like nothing revolutionary. I already knew that. But, you know, what does that look like? I mean, I, how do I become like the Messiah? And, I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, does that mean, like, uh, I suffer like him? I mean, the Messiah suffered a lot, right? That could be part of it, because sometimes our lives do involve suffering, no doubt about that. But one thing for sure is, to, in order to become like the Messiah, we're going to have to know something about the Messiah. We're going to have to study the Messiah and study his entire ministry and get into the scriptures and see what he was about. Now, sometimes I think that when we talk about being like the Messiah, becoming more like the Messiah, maybe we think that just means to be nice. Like, I just need to be a nice person. Messiah is nice. I need to be nice. There's a lot of nice people, I mean, out there. I, I, boy, they're so nice. She's nice. He's nice. Maybe it's just about being nice. Um, no, there's a lot more to it than that, of course. Because, you see, what I see today a lot of times is that, uh, you know, being like the Messiah today, in today's world just means one thing generally, at least among professing believers, that is, and that's just that it's just love, right? I mean, the Messiah commands us to love people, which he does, and we just need to love and become more loving, and that is being like the Messiah. Well, that's what we might say. Uh, it's true, but it's a little reductionistic, as we say. You're reducing something down to one point. Now, one thing we do need to understand to become more like the Messiah is certainly to become more loving, but the Messiah is the embodiment of love and truth, okay? So to become like the Messiah means that we need to be able to integrate truth and love together, speak truth and love together, okay? We can't necessarily divorce those things. So love today, in today's culture, means in many ways we have to affirm everything, right? If you don't affirm someone's behavior, you don't love them, right? You, we, that's the way people are. If you don't affirm what I do, you don't love me. That's, that's the whole debate about a lot of things today. But that's not really what biblical love is, okay? We love them unconditionally, but we also have to be people of truth and love. Now, something else about the Messiah that he did, of course, he was committed to the Father's glory. He was committed to obeying the Father. So... Over the course of our lives as believers, God will challenge us to obey him in certain areas, to yield over to him, to surrender. And that is another way we become like the Messiah, becoming more obedient to God. Another way we become more like the Messiah is to 
become more holy, right? The Messiah was sinless, and God is conforming us to his image. It means that we hate sin as time goes on. We don't like sin. It becomes less appealing to us, and we're supposed to not like sin as much as time goes on. Or another thing to become like the Messiah means that we need to just die to ourselves. I mean, Yeshua said, whatever you do, take up your execution stake and follow me daily. If anyone wishes to follow me, let him take up his execution stake and follow me daily. That's what he says in Luke 9, 23. So maybe we need to just learn how to die to the things that we want and follow the Lord. Another issue of obedience there, right? And so there's all kinds of things that the Messiah teaches on in the Gospels that we can learn from. But God's overall goal for our entire life, his will is to become like the Messiah. Now, I'll bet some of you are saying this. Well, you know, Eric, over the course of my life, as of where I am today, I really do want to be more like the Messiah, but I still have the same struggles over and over. I have the same attitude problems. I can't get over certain sins. There's certain behaviors. There's this or that, and it just doesn't work. I mean, I try to be like the Messiah. I'm working hard on it, and I just fail, okay? And we get discouraged, and that's probably the way it is for many of us, including myself in uh, some course of our lives and, and today as well. Well, there may be something that we need to remind ourselves of, and that is something that God commands us to do that is his will as well. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, and this will tie into exactly to becoming like the Messiah, something else that is God's will for our lives. And let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 here. As we say to ourselves, well, you know, I can't be like the Messiah, and I struggle and struggle, and I just can't emulate him, and I just want to give up the life of being a believer at times. I just want to throw in the towel, as we might say. Well, he does have some, talks about something very clearly here. It's important. If we go to Ephesians 5 and go down to verse 15 here, says here in verse 15, it says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Ruach, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody with your heart, to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Messiah, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of the Messiah. It is God's will for all of us to be filled with the Ruach, right? And so if we want to be conformed to the image of the Messiah, that means we're going to need to be filled with the Ruach. Now, what does that mean to be filled with the Ruach? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that God just uh, zaps us over the head or we have a lightning bolt experience or we just necessarily, you know, feel this uh, buzzing on top of our head or some feeling necessarily. When we came to know the Lord, uh, God knew that we would not be able to live out the life of a Messiah follower. He knew we wouldn't, wouldn't be able to be conformed to his image without help. And so he sent the Ruach to indwell us and when we come to faith, we do receive the Ruach into our lives, and we receive all of him. We don't get like part of him. We get all of him, and he begins to work in our lives. But 
What does it mean to be filled? Well, what it means to be filled is to be yielded to the Ruach, right? It means to be controlled by the Ruach, that the Ruach has control of our lives. It's like Howard uh, gives that illustration with like uh, the sponge, you know, you, um, a sponge in a little bucket of water, you put the sponge in it and you soak it and, you know, you pull it out and then you squeeze it and uh, the sponge is just permeated by water, you know, and we squeeze it. But, you know, it's kind of like we're permeated by the Spirit. That's the goal. And so we do not, uh, and by the way, in this uh, passage here in Ephesians, actually, uh, it's actually, there's something that's very interesting about it, because the command here is a present imperative, by the way, and it is not a one-time experience. It's a regular pattern of life. And so, Paul is contrasting here being dissipated with wine because wine obviously can, lots of wine can hinder us and hinder our judgment and everything, but to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what are some of the evidences of being filled with the rock? Well, he says here in context in verse 19, we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns of spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord, and we're people of thanksgiving. Someone who's filled with the rock will be a person who gives thanks, right? Okay, it's all in context here, right? And so we may say to ourselves, well, you know, what are some of the signs I'm filled with the Ruach? I mean, I don't, I don't honestly feel like I'm filled. I woke up today, I didn't have any kind of major feeling today, and I woke up that I'm filled with the Ruach. It's, uh, you know, it, it's something where we will, uh, first of all, we can ask to be filled continuously. We can ask God to fill us with his rock. That's okay. We do that. But what are some of the things that we can look at? Well, it's one thing I would say, you know you're filled with the rock when you genuinely desire the things of God, okay? It's a continual, just a desire. Like, I desire the word of God. I desire prayer. I desire to be in community. I desire godly things. Uh, it's not so much, um, uh, you know, definitely we may struggle sometimes to be motivated, but the overall direction is, I desire the things of the Lord, okay? Another uh, sign that we are filled with the rock, I think, is that we are, you know, hopefully that the goal is that we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Now, you know, you can get a lot of things done for God. You can work for God, you can teach, you can serve on, you know, do service activities and things like that and do them and get really tired and work really hard. But, you know, when the Ruach's working in our life, hopefully it's something where we sense that he's doing it through us, right? When, uh, you know, we teach or use a spiritual gifting or even share our faith, whatever it is, we sense that this is him working that gift through us. But we will not be conformed to the image of Messiah unless we attempt to be filled with the Ruach. And that means we need to be yielded over to the Lord in our lives, giving him control of our lives. Now, there's something else that God has said that is definitely his will in our lives that is very, very important, and that is the issue of being discerning, growing in discernment. And boy, is that needed today. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. I want to look at something in Hebrews chapter 5, okay? Now, when we look at Hebrews chapter 5, we know the whole context of Hebrews is about the priestly aspect of the Messiah. 
And by the way, you all are so quiet today. Is everyone, are you guys praying for me? Are you falling asleep? Okay, anyway, I just, it's so quiet out there. I feel like people are out there, I'm praying for Eric, my head's down. Anyway, so, but let's look at Hebrews chapter 5 uh, for a minute here. Now, the context, of course, is the high priestly ministry of the Messiah, but here we have a challenge because the author of Hebrews is writing to an audience that is danger in danger of uh, apostatizing, falling away from the Lord. He's going to lead into that more in chapter 6, but we're looking at chapter 5. And he says here, let's just read chapter 5. It's a short chapter here. It says here in verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses, and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So Messiah did not glorify himself, so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he says also another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of the flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears of the one, able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he says here, this is where the, the rebuke becomes. He says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. They're becoming sluggish. By though this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food, solid food is for the mature because of, their, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, it's interesting that that uh, Hebrew word for discernment, bin, bin, uh, actually it appears 250 times in the Tanakh, and it is translated as insight or understanding. It can mean consider, perceive, prudent, regard, um, sometimes the word's related to a noun that means interval or space between. In essence, it means to separate things from one another at their points of difference in order to distinguish them, or the process by which one comes to know or understand God's thoughts and ways through separating those things that differ. Now, in this context of Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews wants his audience to know they should know the superiority of Yeshua's priestly ministry over the Aaronic priesthood, and they're not getting that, okay? And he's saying, you should know that by now, and you're becoming sluggish and dull in your hearing, and you're undiscerning. No, that's not possible. No one could be like that. No one could think like that. It's everywhere. Trust me, that is reality. I see it all the time, and I'm sure some of you have seen it. And guess what? What a lack of discernment those people have. It's just absolutely astonishing, and it's, going, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And, you know, we actually have a way to fix some of these problems here at Beth Messiah. It's called MSI, right? And 
You know, this is one of the things that we have MSI for to combat this kind of stuff, right? Embracing the whole of Scripture. And Henry and Andrew have been working night and day to get the website up online, the new website. And we have instructors that labor, Marcy, Chris, uh, Peter, Howard, oh yeah, myself. And, uh, you know, we spend hours trying to bring the scriptures in a way, you know, that we don't have to see these kinds of things, that can fix them. So that's one of the reasons why we exist. But what's really sad is that, uh, you know, today when it comes to discernment, is that how many of God's people are just so, uh, I mean, that, that's obviously a big example, but just, so, just a lack of discernment is just everywhere. I mean, the stuff I see, I mean, we, many of us see. And, you know, this is a problem too, by the way, because what people do now is they just Google everything. I'll just Google it. Oh, I looked it up on Wikipedia, okay? Do you know some of the things I've heard over the last month? I just want to tell you a few more, not aside this. I have seen one group of people in the city that say when you read John 10 and Yeshua says, I have other sheep that I, uh, they're not of my fold. You know, he says, the shepherd and the sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of my fold. Making it sound like there's other sheep out there, you know, that he doesn't, that haven't come to faith yet. I have one group of people in the city that think that means that Yeshua came to America. It means Yeshua came to America in the 1800s. You know the group I'm talking about because he needed to reach the people groups in America. I have another group out there I've, I've run into that thinks that uh, Yeshua is the mother God and God's the father God. Okay, and so they are a uh, group that goes around Columbus evangelizing, and I, they've shown me the scriptures that they use out of context, and they, you know what I asked them, how'd you come to that conclusion? They said, well, it just says it right here. Oh, great. Uh, we have another group uh, that, uh, oh yeah, we have uh, another group that you all know who it is, but they, they say on their billboard that Yeshua was a Muslim, and their logic is, well, Islam means submission, and Yeshua submitted to God. Therefore, Yeshua is a Muslim. Great, great, great exegesis there. Okay, so it just goes on and on, and to be honest, it's really tragic. But we are called to grow in our discernment. You know, we are not called to be gullible, okay? It's not a sign of spirituality, okay? And I think what happens sometimes is that we think that well, you know, I can't know everything, and it's arrogant to say I know too much, and head knowledge is bad. That's another topic for another time. But, you know, we just have all these sayings. Well, I want to be humble. You know, I, I don't want to act like I know too much. Well, God wants us to know truth, okay? And discernment is part of that, knowing, discerning truth from error, okay? And so let us hopefully be growing in our discernment. And not going backwards. I, I mean, that's, that's what I see a lot of times. I mean, I don't know everything. None of us can know everything. But hopefully we're striving to grow in our discernment and learning from the mistakes that uh, the audience in Hebrews were making there, right? They're becoming dull of hearing and becoming sluggish. And so let's learn from their mistakes, okay? And let's learn how to discern, Okay. Now, there's another thing that is definitely God's will in the scriptures, and that is revealed in 1 Peter chapter 3, and that ties a little bit in with what I just mentioned about discernment. And when Peter is writing to this audience in 1 Peter chapter 3, he is writing to a group of persecuted believers. We know that if you read all throughout 1 Peter, it's a lot of suffering going on there. He talks about 
their the audience's suffering, how to behave, and how to respond correctly. But when it comes to 1 Peter 3, if you go down to verse 14 here, it says here, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, in verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify the Messiah as Lord in our hearts, be always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Messiah may be put to shame. Now, when Peter says here, he talks to him in verse 14 and 15 here, especially verse 15, he tells them when people come to them, he wants them to for sure already be sanctifying the Messiah in their hearts, meaning they have set apart the Lord, that he is the Lord of their lives, and they're totally committed to him. But then he says, be ready when they come to you and ask you for that hope that you have, okay? What be ready to give them a reason for the hope that you have, okay? Now, this scripture is used a lot of times. We call it the uh, apologetics verse in the Bible um, because, you know, a lot of people uh, think that because it says we have to give a defense or called to give a defense or reason for the hope that is within us, but there's more verses to look at than that. But this one in particular uh, really has some good points, and that is the fact that uh, you know, we live in a day where I hope that we can strive to be case makers. Now, you may say to yourself, well, what's a case maker? Well, as the, my friends Jane Warner Wallace uh, calls it case making, we have to come to the place in this culture today, we have to be able to give a case for why we are Messiah followers. So if someone comes up to us and says, why do you believe this thing about Yeshua? Why do you follow the Messiah? Why do you follow Yeshua? What is this thing about? We have to strive to be able to present our case. Now, you may say to yourself, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I follow the Messiah because he makes a difference in my life. Or I follow the Messiah because the Ruach uh, sh has shown me the truth. Or I follow the Messiah because uh, I like the community I'm in and the people are nice. Food's good at the Oneg. Um, I it's okay, I like the food too. But we, you know, we give some reasons, but you know, we do case making in every area of our life. I bet you can make a case for who you voted for in the last election, like you could spend hours on that one, right? Or you could make a strong case for why you picked your major in college or why you picked a vocation or a job. And you know, so we do case making in every area of our life. Okay, we can give good cases for what everything, but when it comes to following the Messiah and why we believe in him, we need to understand that we live in a day that we need to really have a strong case for what we believe and why we believe, okay? This day and age, with all the different beliefs out there and the internet and the Googling, which is just insane these days, it's just impossible these days to not have a good case for what we believe. Now, you may say, well, what about the ones you just gave? What about he makes a difference in my life and... The Ruach is in my life, and, you know, the Ruach bears witness with my spirit, and those things. Well, they're okay, but Mormons say the same things, okay? It's the same thing I hear from Mormons, and I hear the same things from Muslims. I hear the same things from people from other religious backgrounds, that their religion makes a difference in their life. So, in my opinion, I really think one of the things we need to make a good case for, or be able to make a good case for, 
is what uh, former atheist Antony Flew said. He died a ways back. Antony Flew, in a debate with uh, an apologist named Gary Habermas, said this. This is the, the atheist speaking. He said, If Yeshua rose from the dead, literally and physically, this constitutes the best, if not the only reason for accepting that Yeshua is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's basically saying that if Yeshua rose from the dead, that is the best piece of evidence you have that the God of the Bible is the one true God, okay? We need to be able to make a case for why Yeshua rose from the dead, okay? I think that's very important these days. Now, you may say to yourself, well, you need to, Eric, because you're on college campuses, but I don't need to do that. I don't know. I mean, I, I, if you have kids these days and you want to raise them in the culture around us, one of the things we're called to do is equip our young people to engage the culture, okay? We don't insulate them, right? We don't keep them in here. We equip them in here to send them out there, okay? Just like we equip congregants in here during the week, and you go out there, all right? That's what we do. We don't... Um, we're not called just to be insulated, okay, and just bless each other all the time. We need that. We need to edify each other. But most of the days during the week, we're not in here. We're out there, right? We're in the workplace. We're in different areas where we have influence, okay? And we need to be able to give a good case for what we believe and why we believe. No, we don't need to know everything. We can't. But we need to be able to give a general case for why we follow the Messiah, okay? And it's only going to get more challenging as the years go by, okay? Only worse and worse. So, now I, I could tell you, the other day, just by the way, the other day, I had somebody, I was on campus somewhere, and uh, I was talking to them as I was explaining a case about something, and they just started Googling right in front of me. Well, it says right here, I just looked it up right here, and it says right here, and that is the day we live in is the day of Googling. Okay, you're like, okay, you made enough points about Googling. All right, now... So we've established that, at least for now, we know a few things that definitely, first of all, it's God's will that we're conform the image of the Messiah. It's God's will that we're filled with the Ruach. It's God's will that we are discerning and growing in our discernment. It's God's will that we're able to make a case for what we believe and why we follow the Messiah. And then finally, I'm going to say it's God's will that we forgive. Right. Okay. Let's look at one last scene here in Ephesians 4. Go back to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing to a, uh, his audience here of Gentile believers, and he says something that's so important. And he says here in verse 20, I'll just start in verse 29, because actually it kind of ties in with being filled with the Spirit, because the opposite is to grieve the Spirit. But it says here in verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word it is edifying according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Ruach by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in the Messiah has forgiven us. Definitely God's will that we forgive, because you know what happens when we don't forgive on a regular basis? It begins to impact us physically. Actually, I know people who don't forgive, and it's, it's taken its toll on them, like physically, like they're sick. Like they, they don't feel well sometimes, and 
when they see this person they haven't forgiven in public, they tend to have a reaction almost. They can't even be around them. That's the result of unforgiveness, okay? I've seen it happen to people. We need to forgive regularly, even when we don't feel like forgiving. It's out of our obedience to God that we release people over to the Lord. You say, you know what, Lord, I, I don't want to forgive this person, but I'm going to release him to you out of my obedience to you, okay? And there's a, sometimes when we do that, there's like a release that comes out of us, you know? It just feel, we just feel a release almost, okay? And so forgiveness is part of the life of, of a believer. Now, obviously, there's going to be things in life that many of us may be challenged on. Some of us have been hurt in major ways. I don't know what they are, and it may take a long time to forgive. It may be a process, okay? But little petty things that we tend to be upset over, and many times we just need to say, eh, I can let that one go, okay? We can let it go. Or we can, you know, maybe we need to go to the person and tell them we forgive them. I don't know. But the point is, forgiveness is a way of life in the life of a believer. So, God's moral will is revealed all throughout the Bible. Everything he's told us to do in here, and we've only gone over a few points today, are all revealed in here, okay? Now, now for my friend I spoke about at the beginning, or for ourselves, perhaps we're saying, well, I have a very important choice to make, and it's not in the Bible. I don't know what to do. There's no revelation in the Bible about whether I should pick this job or marry this person or do this or do that. And it's something that's very important and I don't know what to do. Well, that's true because not everything's revealed in the Bible, right? Not everything's there, okay? There's going to be decisions in your life where the Bible doesn't address it specifically. What we have in the Bible are moral guidelines, of course. So, if you're wondering if you should marry somebody, if you're a believer and you're saying, I need to pray about whether I should marry this person, they don't believe in Yeshua. No, you don't need to pray about it, right? It's already revealed in the Bible. You should marry a believer, okay? But the point is that when we don't know what to do and it's not in the Bible, many times we do pray about it and God will lead us and show us in the way he wants to. But in some cases, he may ask us to just do something, Okay. Just do something. You know what this author says? He says, what we sometimes God, what sometimes God wants us to do is take a step of faith, okay? And then we follow God, and the light will come later when we need, when we need it. But sometimes we get so paralyzed in our decisions, we don't know what to do because we're afraid to make a mistake, and God wants us to do something, act, okay? All right. Well, having said that, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for the fact that you have revealed so much about yourself in your word. And Lord God, I pray that your Ruach would empower us to carry out your word. And may we all know, God, that you are conforming us to the image of your Son in whatever we're doing. We pray, Lord God, that we be filled with your Ruach and help us to be discerning and help us to be casemakers and help us to do your will, God. And we just thank you how you've given us your mind in this text. You've given us revelation about what you desire for us to do. We thank you. You condescended and gave us yourself through Yeshua and gave us this text so we can know what your mind is on certain issues. And we pray this all in the name of Messiah. Amen.